as the world honored one was walking with the congregation, he pointed to the ground with his finger and said, this spot is good to build a sanctuary. Indra, emperor of the gods, took a blade of grass, stuck it in the ground and said, the sanctuary is built. The world honored one smiled. On Thursday, I talked about this koan in relation to sanctuary as a shelter. And I suggested a way to see sanctuary, not as tied to a kind of physical stability of houses or the emotional stability of relationships, but to see it as something we're capable of erecting in any place and any time. Capable because we are by no means alone. Uh, We're surrounded by aid in the seen and unseen worlds. Today, I want to explore the idea of abundance and freedom that we see in this encounter between the Buddha and Indra. So, um, Hongju responds to this koan, and I think I, yes, I, I talked about some of this, um, this little bit of his poem in response to it. Uh, so, I might be repeating a little bit, but it's worthy of repetition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hongju responds to this koan in which Indra erects a sanctuary with a blade of grass with this poem that names the abundance that's available to us. On the hundred grass tips, boundless spring, the boundless spring on the hundred plants, taking what's at hand, use it freely. Picking up what comes to hand, he uses it knowingly. In Hongzhu's response, he uses the image of springtime grasses that we've been talking a lot about uh, with these grasses. And Deborah Saito says that in Buddhism, grasses represent the 10,000 things of life. No shortage of grass means no shortage of particulars, of the stuff of our life, of delusion and moments in which to wake up. We've had quite a dry beginning of summer in this part of the world with weeks going by in which each day hits a hundred and feels hotter than that. It feels like the whole world is baking dry. At my family's land in Victoria, I put up a bird bath so the birds have a treat in this dry weather. And also I figured out a way to put this pond liner in this, it's a big tub it's bigger than that bell, but it's, it's some, something like the shape of that. So I put the liner in and then rope around it to hold the liner. And all the creatures love it. It's amazing. Just the, in the morning, it's the, the tracks of all, little raccoons and deer and everything is, you know, we can see, we saw a raccoon just come up and just lay in it. <laughs> and we got to put rocks on top so the birds could get, you know, down there. Uh, so it's just incredible how just this tiny little bit of effort 
And the cardinals especially like the bird bath though. They they don't like that big pond. They like the bird bath more. So the the couples, the the extra red <laughs> males and the not so red females just get in there, take turns splashing around, splashing around in that pond, that uh, bird bath. So there's a creek nearby, but they all appreciate this place that's closer to hand. So um, I've been really heartened to see how little it takes to uh, see the quickening of life. You know, everything just flocks where you have some resources like that, like this water. And yet I can also see that without my little small ministrations, the uh, Texas sage continues to blossom purple and the Coreopsis blooms all over the forest floor. I don't know how it's just, there's no water. It's so dry. And if we think of the, the spectrum of abundance and lack, we often imagine we're uncomfortably close to the side of lack. At least I know I do. I remember as a small child coming into the, um, the living room one Christmas morning, and it was just this abundance of toys. And I, I don't think we, that was a normal thing for our family. So it was like, I still remember a basketball. I was like, a basketball. <laughs> and I had no interest in basketball. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, bikes, you know, and all six of us kids, we were so excited. We didn't even know who was going to get what, but we were just so, it was just thrilling to see that kind of abundance. Um, so this Christmas experience comes from all out of a very old culture, a cultural need for plenty. So many cultures have this, have different ways of staging plenty. Um, and they bring in, in the, in, a lot of times they'll place it in the midst of a time of scarcity, like winter, when the stores would have been low and when the light was not so much light. So you have all this light in the winter time that you're kind of making plenty. Um, so this child's joy at the gifts laid out for her and her siblings is nothing compared to the gifts of this life. We don't live in a world of lack, even though we sometimes imagine we do. We might think of the loved ones who are no longer physically with us. I can see this often in my mother. She's 81. She's full of the joy of life when she's out in the midst of a natural scene. Um, she notices again and again, every minute or less than a minute, um, these little something, some thing that the little bugs make in the sand. Look at that. Like she just wants, you know, calls my attention to this, this sign of life. She um, loves the gestures of the branches that are lofting in the wind. Um, the bright sounds of the birds calling to one another. She always says, I hear you. <laughs> when she hears the bird, the cardinal calling. Uh, but lately she has this moment when every time she has a moment to sit still without distraction, she starts to think about her mother who passed away 32 years ago. And 
um, it's it's really hard. It's hard to see her longing for her mother. So as she goes to bed, I put lotion on her face and hands. And I think this, this loving gesture reminds her, her of her mother. So she starts to say, you know, something about her mother. And so I, the last time I was there, I said, yes, it's true. She did pass away. Um, but in another sense, she's still with us this very moment. Um, she was such a sweet and loving mother to my mother. And um, she taught her to be a generous mother. And now here I am being generous and loving to her. So she's right there with us. There's no lack. She's not gone. Um, so that the generosity of that loving circle coming back to, to her is comforting it to her and to me. Um, if we think we're living in the midst of scarcity, we also, another way to, to work with this is to adjust our view. And one way, startling way to do that is to get a view adjustment, adjustment by reading the, the great Mahayana Sutras. In chapter 10 of the Vimalakirti Sutra, we take up more on the saga that we've been talking about for the last few days. This, in this episode, Ananda smells the fragrance of this wonderful food that ha, uh, has been described in the previous chapter. And we hear the teaching that describes how in, in this, what's going on here, at least one thing, is we're seeing that the Buddhas teach in many, 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 many forms, not just with words or gestures or anything like that. So this one Buddha in another world system far, far away teaches with perfume. And so Ananda is, you know, smelling that perfume and being kind of awakened to that idea. Um, so I told the story of, about an earlier chapter in the sutra when Shariputra had a worried thought about where all the guests of Vimalakirti would sit. And Vimalakirti read his mind and he lightly scolded him for having such thoughts and uh, thinking in such limited terms. And then he produced thousands of giant lion thrones for all the guests to fit in this tiny little room. Now, at the end of the sutra, we have another worried thought coming to Shariputra's mind. If the proceedings go on much longer, how will all of them be fed? Here is how it goes. Thereupon, the, the venerable Shariputra thought to himself, if these great bodhisattvas do not adjourn before noontime, when are they going to eat? The Lachavi Vimalakirti, knowing telepathically, the thought of the venerable Shariputra spoke to him. Reverend Shariputra, the Tathagata has taught the eight liberations. You should concentrate on those liberations. Listening to the Dharma with a mind free of preoccupations with material things. Just wait a minute, Reverend. So, now, Vimalakirti performs a miraculous feat 
enabling an emanation bodhisattva. So he emanates a bodhisattva and that bodhisattva, he goes off to this other Buddha field to get some food from the perfume (laughs) realm. Um, And the Buddha of that realm pours some of this deliciously perfumed food into a container, a vessel for the emanation bodhisattva to take back to the Saha world, which is where we live and where Vimalakirti lived. Um, So 90 million bodhisattvas of that realm, where the teaching is done with perfume, decide to accompany him back because they want to see what it's like in this other world. But first they have to tamp down all their fabulous uh, smell and just they, they're, they're just so great. <laughs> they don't want to freak people out. So, <laughs> so they do that and then they all come down um, to the Saha world. Um, so once again, Shariputra stands for thought based on scarcity. As soon as he receives the vessel, Vimala Kirti anticipates this thought. He spoke to Shariputra and the great disciples, reverence, eat of the food of the Tathagata. It is ambrosia perfumed by the great compassion, but do not fix your minds in narrow-minded attitudes, lest you be unable to receive this gift. But some of the disciples had already had the thought, how can such a huge multitude eat such a small amount of food? (laughs) Very practical-minded. Vimalakirti's emanation bodhisattva says, issued from inexhaustible morality, concentration, and wisdom, the remains of the food of the Tathagata contained in this vessel cannot be exhausted. And so they have a meal perfumed with the Dharma, and they experience the bliss of abundance and freedom. And thinking about Vimalakirti's warning of Shariputra and the other disciples about fixing their minds on narrow concerns, I do want to put in a word for those who take care of concerns like supplying enough food (laughs) and finding enough chairs, making sure people in the assembly will be comfortable. Uh, Because I believe there's a significant difference in what Vimalakirti terms narrow-minded attitudes and this magnanimous mind of hospitality that cares for the Sangha, as as everyone here has been doing all this time. I have seen so many different ways that people are caring for the Sangha. It's the the Tenzos, the food is so good, (laughs) so amazing and fresh and wonderful. And all the people in the kitchen who have been doing that, um, all the floors are always so nice and clean. Uh, Everything. It's just, we're all, we're all working together to make this beautiful Buddha field right here. We're, we're doing that together. Um, So there's nothing wrong with that. That's not narrow-minded views <laughs> when we're doing that. Um, I think that Vimalakirti could sense that Shariputra and the other disciples were, were not quite fathoming the emptiness of those spatial and temporal constraints. 
Um, so when I look at the beginning of Chateau's Song of the Grass Roofed Hermitage that we chanted last night, I, uh, I love these lines about the wear and tear of life as it accrues to not only to the body and mind, but also to our physical habitations. So in that uh, song, he sings, I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it is completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. So we can notice that every day. We go clean the zendo. It's perfect. <laughs> Next day, it needs to be done again. We've all been in there with, with, our, with you know, different kinds of things brought in on our clothes and feet. So what does one do when the garden and grounds are covered with weeds? And what do we do when the mind gets a bit weedy? Chateau moves between this so-called mundane and the so-called sacred world with almost each line of the poem. He says, the middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west, firmly based on steadiness. It can't be surpassed. So we do the work that needs to be done. We add energy to our practice if it needs energy, and we add relaxation to our practice if it needs relaxation. We pitch in to help reset the zendo each time a new use for it arises. We watch to see if everyone has what they need and we do what we can to be hospitable. And we also know that the original master is present, firmly based in steadiness, like Iron Grinder Leo, if you remember that story. So I heard this I started this talk saying that I wanted to look at this koan about a sanctuary built with a blade of grass with an eye toward its teachings about abundance and freedom. And I've spent more time on abundance than on freedom. So I want to look at what it means for, for our freedom as well. I guess the relationship is clear anyway. We if we recognize the abundance that is all around us, we see our ingenuity in finding ways and resources available to us. We know we're not alone and that help will come when it's needed. We can feel free. As the Thai writer Sulak Sivaraksa says, Freedom in Buddhism doesn't refer to freedom from constrictions, restrictions, sorry. He says that path leads to materialism and environmental destruction. And think, don't put a limit on me. I can get anything I want. That's not the freedom we're talking about. Freedom begins with generosity generosity leads to living an ethical life and living an ethical life in turn derives from mindfulness. This is what creates true freedom and happiness. So I recently heard a story about a 16 year old girl, Anna Melnik in Ukraine, 
who was living with her family in a territory that was under grave threat from bombings and and the invasion. The reporter first saw her in a train station in Lviv at an information desk. And she wears this green vest. It says information across the front of it. And she directs all these people who are frightened and disoriented. They've had to leave their homes. They don't know what they're going to come back to. um, And they don't know where to go. And she tells them where the bomb shelter is. And she she tells them what she knows to tell them about the next step. She's from uh, Kiev. And before February, she was a 10th grader with concerns that her physics teacher was too hard on her. Um, And now she's doing this thing. She's being a, a sanctuary for other people. She and her mother had to, there is this other part of it, the reporter, she showed the reporter her cell phone with all her pictures. And there's a period of time when it's just all these kids, these selfies, they're taking pictures together. And then immediately, you suddenly start seeing helicopter, you know, war helicopters and right outside her window. It's her life has changed just unimaginably. Um, she and her mother left uh, Kiev and went to this other place where their grandmother was, where her grandmother was, feeling like that would be safer, and it became much less safe. And they had to make this very hard decision to leave. They didn't know if it would be even more dangerous to leave or stay. They went to Lviv, and she, her mother said she was only there three days, and she was like, I want to get out and do some volunteering. So she's been weaving camouflage nets for uh, tanks, and, and then she got into this um, information, uh, get working in the train station, helping people. So she's the first point of contact for all those anxious and tired people that come into that station. And she herself is in a very tenuous position. She's not in any, any better position than all those people coming through. But she knows that she got at least to one point and she can help them get to that next point. So it's, she's a, she's a hero. She's, we can, we can take our, take her lead and follow her lead. And I also just want to say too, that I'm telling this story about Anna and her family, but I know that centering on one particular kind of refugee is, um, is tricky uh, because we give voice to that particular kind and we forget all the other ones. So all the people in here in Venezuela and Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala are very, very much in need of shelter. And the, the greatest number of refugees come from Syria. So we, we just want to keep our mind open and realize uh, reality. Um, so in Vimalakirti's playful ways of waking the bodhisattvas and disciples to the non-dual nature of reality, he untangles them from a reliance on the needs of the self and uses a wide array of means to show them the boundaryless possibilities of a universe that is ready with resources. 
in our lives, we will certainly find ourselves with the mind of Shariputra, concerned about seating arrangements, <laughs> worried about food. Um, it's amazing. I just, it's the funniest thing in Sashin. I get so greedy for food. <laughs> I get plenty of it. And I'm just like, more, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's amazing. It's the funniest. I just see it arise and I'm, you know, everybody's looking at me thinking I'm just so peaceful and I really have this little greedy monster <laughs> inside. Um, so there, there that is, there's that mind right there. Um, so we can, we can recognize that we can see that, um, worry about that kind of the food bowl looking a little scant or something like that. And we can also have this mind of Vimalakirti, certain of the abundant aid that is always available to us. We can also cultivate the mind of the Buddha who sees that any spot is good to build a sanctuary for ourselves and for others. No matter where we are, we can build, we can be that sanctuary. And we can also cultivate the mind of Indra, who knowing the process of building a sanctuary is as simple as the intention to make it. <laughs> 